The word of the Lord came to Jonah, Jonah 1.1, the son of Amittai, saying. Now when you see the phrase, the word of the Lord came, that's a very common description of how a word came to a prophet. We're not always sure how the word came, but the word of the Lord is a divine communication from God to man. Just simply put, when the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, it's a divine communication from God to man. In 1 Thessalonians 1.8, it can describe the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, it can describe a, a divine promise. This I say by the word of the Lord. And then there's teaching about the rapture. In 1 Peter 1.25, it can describe the scriptures. The word of the Lord abides forever. So there is such a thing as the word of the Lord, distinct from the knowledge of man or what a man might say. It's a divine communication. And God has spoken. In fact, we call the Bible the Word of God. It is the Word of the Lord. So every time you open your Bible, you are reading a divine communication from God to man. You are opening up a book that is inspired by God, literally, literally breathed out by God. There's a story in Exodus 9. Let's all turn to Exodus. That's the second book of our Bibles. Exodus 9. Um, Moses has been sent to Egypt to... Deliver the people by God's mighty hand and by plagues. In Exodus chapter 9, uh, there's a warning. A chance to flee from the hail that is coming, which is the seventh plague. Look at Exodus 9.18. Behold, Exodus 9.18, about this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail, the seventh plague. Such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Exodus 9.19. Uh, now therefore, send and bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. Exodus 9.20. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord, that divine communication, made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord, left his servants and his livestock in the field. Go down to verse 25. And the hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. A divine communication came through Moses to Pharaoh and simply said this, you have a little bit of time to heed the word of the Lord. Those who heeded the word put their livestock into shelters, protected what they had, believed the word, and were the better for it. Those who mocked it, those who said, I don't believe that's going to happen, I don't believe any hail's coming, this is the seventh plague, so by now they should know that God's going to be good to his word, amen? And the hail came and it destroyed a lot of stuff. You see, if you go back to the book of Jonah, Psalm 18.30 says, the word of the Lord is tried he is a shield to all, who those who, all those who take refuge in him. When he says something, it is going to happen. He has elevated his word above his name or equal with his name. When God says something, it is always true and it's always going to happen. Throughout our Bibles, we can see the word of the Lord coming to Abram, Samuel, Nathan, Solomon, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Haggai, Zechariah. It comes, it is tried, and it is proven. 
But what really matters, according to James 1.22, is what you do once the word comes. Amen? That's what we've been learning in the book of James, is that if you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, if you don't respond to the word and what it says, then you are self-deluded. And that same word that could be a lighthouse or a refuge in the storm can become your destruction. Because if you don't heed it, then you're going to be in trouble. Jonah, uh, interesting, his name means dove, just as a side note for you Bible students. And he's, from, he's the son of Imatai, which means truth or truthful. And we are told that the Holy Spirit, when Jesus was baptized, came down in the form of what? A dove. And Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. And that Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's John 16. You can look at verses 7 through 9. So it's interesting to me that Jonah may be kind of in type as the Holy Spirit here, although he is disobedient at first. The Spirit goes out through the church into the world, crying out. But how will people hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? The call of the church is to bring the good news of great joy, to tell it on the housetops. And so God's word to Jonah, very simple, arise. Go to Nineveh, verse 2, Jonah 1. The great city, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, Genesis 10 tells us that Nineveh was founded by Nimrod. So if you've ever studied the table of nations in Genesis 10, it was Nimrod who went out and founded Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of a world empire called Assyria. Assyria would destroy the 10 northern tribes in about 722 B.C., about 50 years after Jonah received his call to go to Nineveh. So there's an interesting connection here to what's going to happen in the future for Israel and Jonah's call as he is called to preach against this great city. Some believe that there are as many as 400,000, 500,000 people in the city, four times bigger perhaps than Corona, three, four times. And he was to cry against it. The word cry is kara or korah in Hebrew. It means to call out, to recite, to proclaim. He was to cry out or preach NIV against it for their wickedness. Their wickedness, verse 2, had come up before the Lord. It was swelling up to confront the Lord. There's language in the Bible that sometimes what happens in a city or a nation, it takes time. This is the picture that's painted in the Bible before God says enough is enough. He gives a space of time for nations and individuals and families. And so Jonah got the call. He was to go and cry out. Jesus said how often to the people of Israel, Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood uh, under her wings, but you would not have it. And so God says their sin is grave. I'm going to warn them through the prophet. And God is gracious because God technically doesn't have to give a warning, does he? He could have just said, you know what? It's curtains for this region. It's over. I'm done. But God is so gracious that he will warn. And for many of us, we could say he's warned us over and over and over again. He sent one storm after another saying, hello, 
Hello, would you turn your life over to me now? And we're like, well, I don't know. I can handle this one. It was funny when the kids were doing VBS, they were in the song, My Lighthouse. It says, you will bring us safely back to shore. And everybody was doing the swim motion. And I was wondering if I was going to turn around and you guys were going to be doing back to shore. But nobody was participating from what were you guys doing it you were doing the swim motion nice job Chloe that's impressive now Jonah who was he if you're interested uh, I'll just read it for you but if you want to mark this this is 2nd Kings 14 25 who was Jonah 2nd Kings 14 25 says he speaking of Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Imitai, the prophet, who was of gath Hefer. Now, if you do a little research on Jonah, and that was 2 Kings 14.25, you find out that the region that Jonah hailed from was near Nazareth. And when people were debating about Jesus, they said, no prophet comes out of Nazareth. Well, that's false. Because Jonah, the great prophet, hailed from the northern part of Israel, call it the Galilee region, from the area of Nazareth, where Jesus would come from or grow up in some 700 years later. And so even the so-called experts apparently didn't know their Bible very well. And so God's call is simply arise and go. That's what he calls the church to. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. He says, go to this great city, cry against it, because there's a lot of wicked things going on. One of the sons of Shem was named Asher. Assyria, which uh, the capital is Nineveh, probably comes from his name. You can note Genesis 10, 10 through 12, and Genesis 10, 22. The name Nineveh uh, is derived from Ninus, or from Nimrod, which means the residence of Nimrod, or Nunu. I'm reading from the MacArthur Study Bible. Akkadian for fish. The people worship the fish goddess Nanshi, the daughter of Ea, Ea, the goddess of fresh water. And they worship Dagon, the fish god, who was represented as half man, half fish. Don't you find it interesting that these people worshiped a fish god and Jonah's going to be thrown up on the shores, regurgitated by some sort of major big fish, and they believed in a fish god. <laughs> and I think God's saying, uh, Hello, I speak fish. I made the fish of the sea. I made the waters. I made the land. Stop worship, worshiping fish. Now, for those of you who are VeggieTale fans, how many of you saw the story of Jonah, VeggieTales? You remember the wicked deed that was done by the Ninevites was they were fish slappers. Here's what they did. They went around hitting each other in the face with cold fish. They were a terrible sort of individuals. And so God called Jonah to a bunch of fish slappers, right? To try to save them. That's a funny way of saying they did a lot of evil. And indeed they did. They were a warring type of people. They were uh, brutal in battle. Nineveh was located on the Tigris River 50 years later, 722 B.C., as I mentioned. They would destroy the northern kingdom. 
Assyria would take the ten tribes of the north into captivity, treat them brutally. This raises a question. If 50 years later uh, this was going to happen, why did God send Jonah now? Why not just wipe out this people that was ultimately going to destroy the ten northern kingdoms? Because Assyria became a tool in the hands of God to deal discipline to his people, and God had a master plan. But the, this group of people who responds to the preaching of Jonah bought time for them. And God says there's 120,000 souls in that city, maybe kids, who don't know their left hand from their right hand. God is compassionate and gracious. Oftentimes, I think all the time, more than we are. Sometimes we have to ask God to help us to care. I just want you to think about that for a second. Many of us don't witness because, frankly, we don't care. Because if we cared more about people's eternal destinies, we'd actually do something about it. And, you know, people, somebody cared enough to pray for you and share the gospel with you. And I know it's hard, and I don't do it as much as I would like to. And I know it's risky, and I know we all have those issues with do I know enough, and we have fear of rejection and all of that. But God's called us to share good news. Assyria was known for its constant military campaigns, its base cruelties, as I mentioned in a funny way, they were fish slappers. This is from Eric Metaxas's book. The people of Nineveh were a mean old sort. They wouldn't do dishes. They'd squirt the inside of knishes, <laughs> which is, I had to look this up. This is a dumpling of dough stuffed with a filling. They'd squirt it out. Terrible thing. And worst of all, they'd slap each other with big smelly fishes. But God loved those Ninevites and wanted them to change. And he sent Jonah with a special message to save the day. Will the Ninevites listen to Jonah and obey God's wishes and stop slapping each other with those big smelly fishes? Well, that's the question, isn't it? What does any people do with the word of God when it comes? A couple of parallel passages. I'm not going to go there, but to describe this Warring Assyrian people is Nahum 3, 1 through 4. They're called a bloody city full of lies, many slain. Uh, they have many harlotries, there's sorceries, there's magic, there's all kinds of terrible stuff going on. Nahum 3, 1 through 4. Nahum 3, 19 says, There is no relief for your breakdown, your wound, and this is all about Nineveh and Nahum. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? When they are judged, God says, everybody's going to be excited that you went down because you didn't do good to anyone. And Zephaniah 2, 13 and 15 says, And he will stretch out his hand against uh, the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make a Nineveh a desolation parched like the wilderness. Ultimately, in about 612 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroyed Assyria. And that's how the world empires go down, from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Medo-Persia to uh, Greece to Rome and so forth. So as you think about uh, what Nineveh was, it was the, the capital of this great uh, world empire. And God said, go. And Jonah said, nope. Sometimes when God prods us to do something within our right of free will, 
We can say no. How many of you would confess? You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you have felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit and simply put, you have to admit, you just said no. Oh no, I won't go. In fact, some of you have hesitated on even taking the firm foundation class because some of you believe that if you, if you're known if somebody, if you raise your hand and say, here I am, Lord, send me, God surely is going to send you to some bush country way out, right? I'm afraid, Lord, of what you might do to me. I'm comfortable here in my, in my little city bungalow that I live in. My friends, hey, look, if God puts something on your heart, he will give you a passion for that thing, whatever it may be. But Jonah didn't want to go. He was good with God judging those Ninevites. They were evil, and they had done evil to Jewish people as well. And Jonah was kind of like, no, I don't want to go. I'm good if you judge those people. Lord, I'm good with it. Just in case you, you want, I'll send you an email to confirm. I'm good with it if you, if you judge those people, right? And apparently, as you think about your Bible, can you think of a story of a prophet that's sent to another nation to preach? Hmm. Start thinking. You know, think of all the major prophets that show up in the Bible. Who do they preach to? Israel. But in this case, Jonah is sent out of his nation to preach. And so Jonah rose up to flee, verse 3, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, that's a, a coastal port, found a ship. Joppa, by the way, is the area where Peter saw a vision in Acts chapter 10. And he was hesitant, and he saw a vision of a great sheet. And some men showed up at the door, and Peter was hesitant. And the Holy Spirit said, don't be afraid to go with those people. I've sent them. And Peter went to the house of a man named, remember, Cornelius. And he was hesitant to go into a Gentile house, but then he realized, I'm supposed to preach the gospel. And the house of Cornelius got saved, and there was a big baptism service that occurred there. And there is a parallel between the call of Peter and the running of Jonah. Jonah was supposed to go to Gentiles, non-Jews, but he didn't want to. And so he ran. He went down. You're going to see the word down several times. He paid the fare. Whenever we run from God, the ticket can be there. But when we punch it, it's very expensive to run from God. In fact, it may cost you everything. And many people punch tickets every day running from God. And the devil will always have a ship going to Tarshish if you want to run from God. Amen. He'll, he'll make it easy for you. Yeah, go ahead and go over here. And so he went down into, uh, into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I'm sure it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. You can't run from the presence of the Lord. It's very inconvenient because he's omnipresent, which means he's present everywhere, which means no matter where you go, even if you're in a little dark corner, I don't know if he sees me now. If you're in the bottom of a ship somewhere and you just light a little candle, I'm like, oh, blow that out. I'm trying to make sure God won't see me now. Uh, he sees you. David would write in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your, your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, listen to that, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. That's Jonah, Psalm 139, 7 through 10. In Psalm 55, verse 6, David said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. Jonah's name means dove. And I would fly away and be at rest. Look, there's times in life, and sometimes it's times of pressure, and sometimes it's times of ministry, when it just seems easier to run. And some of you are runners. You run away from problems. You run away from the nudge of the Holy Spirit. You just are a runner. And at some point, you have to stop running from God. His plans are good. And by the way, he's faster than you anyway. He's going to catch you. He's the hound of heaven. But he's come to seek and to save that which is lost. As Jonah headed to Tarshish, all you have to do is imagine that Nineveh is east and Tarshish is west. Jonah went as far west as he could go. Some believe that Tarshish There's a kind of a similar name in Spain, the southern coast of Spain. And some believe that Jonah's plan was even to get to the Americas, to North and South America. He wanted to get as far away from Israel and Jerusalem, God's holy place, if you will, as he could. So he said, I'm I'm taking a ship and I'm going the other way as far as you'll take me. How far are you going? That's as far as I want to go. Take me to Tarshish, man. Punch the ticket. And off he went. But God knows where we are. He knows when we run. God will find us even if we go to the ends of the earth. And so Jonah said no. He paid the fare. And he was sinking in his spiritual walk. He went down. The reality is you can't run from God. And the only way you're going to go if you run from God is down. Donald Gray Barnhouse called attention to the phrase, Jonah paid the fare. It was no doubt a very expensive ticket. Sin is always costly. He noted that Jonah did not get where he was going since he was thrown overboard, and that obviously he did not get a refund on his ticket. He said, when you run away from the Lord, you never get where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. But when you go the Lord's way, you always get where you're going, and he pays the fare, close quote. Which do you want to choose? Well, Jonah's in the, the boat. Maybe he kind of stealthily walked into the boat, tried to hide who he was. But the Lord, Jonah, verse 3, but Jonah, verse 4, and the Lord. You make your move. <laughs> That's about the last move that Jonah's going to make here, by the way. Free will. This may rain on some of your parades, but here it goes. Free will only goes so far. As you say, I'm free to do what I want. Yeah, you, you can get in the boat, but God controls the sea. So if he wants to hurl a storm on the ocean, he can do just that. So Jonah's in the boat. Maybe he thought, oh, good, all right, I'm going to rest for a while. Oh, I hope he judges them soon. This is great. This is wonderful. This is awesome. And all of a sudden, the Lord hurled, great picture, A great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. It was such a violent storm, NIV, that arose that it threatened to break up the ship. And I would imagine the ship was a pretty strong, sturdy-looking vessel, but it was nothing compared to God. To God, it was a dinky little boat in a bathtub. (laughs) 
And there's Jonah on the boat. All right, my plan's working out. This should be cool, right? What's that noise? (laughs) And the Lord hurled a great storm on the sea. What do you do when storms come? What do you do when things are all stirred up? George Whitfield said, All trials are sent for two ends, that we may be better acquainted with the Lord Jesus and with our own wicked hearts. Oswald Chambers said, If you're going to be used by God, He will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you useful in His hands. And so things were getting stormy. Things were breaking up. Jonah was on the run. And the same Jesus who calmed the storm in Mark 4, and the disciples were so amazed, they said, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The same one who can calm the storm is the same one who can stir it up. And not all storms are because we're running from God. So please understand that. We know we live in a fallen world. But some storms are because we're running from God. And this one is nothing less than that. And so here's Jonah. The sailors became afraid. They were expert mariners or sailors. Verse 5. And every man cried to his God. That's what happens when a storm comes and your boat is breaking apart. There's no atheists in foxholes. And there's no atheists in ships that are breaking apart. There's no atheists in planes that are hitting turbulence. Have you noticed? Could you talk to the big guy? You're a pastor? Could you talk to the big guy upstairs? And he calmed down this turbulence. What big guy upstairs? I thought you didn't believe in God. Well, all of a sudden you become very spiritual when your life is on the line. And so every man cried to his God, and they were pagans. They, they did not believe in the true God. And they threw the cargo. They prayed, and they threw that which was in the ship Uh, into the sea. This is often what they would do when threatened to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep. The storm's happening. They're throwing the cargo overboard. And Jonah, the wrong way prophet, is... You're like, how could the guy be sound asleep when there's a storm on the sea? Maybe he was asleep because he was depressed. Maybe he was just trying to escape. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Uh, The ESV says, What do you mean, sleeper? How many of you have woken up your teenager that way? What do you mean, sleeper? Arise and Christ will shine on you. It's time to mow the lawn. You could use this, parents. This is great. Arise, sleeper. And they'll just... Helicopter could land in the front yard. They're not going to wake up. So he says, get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us. Ours aren't, apparently. We've we've been praying. The storm's not calming down. Maybe your God will work, right? They They were willing to try anything so that we won't perish. Maybe he'll care about us. How is it that you're sleeping? Jesus said that very thing to the disciples on that fateful night in the Garden of Gethsemane. How is it that you're sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? But they were sleeping from sorrow. And so here's the storm. And Jonah, interestingly enough, is actually on a rescue mission, and he doesn't know it. And each man said to his mate, verse 7, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell 
on Jonah. Now the sailors, verse 7, had been discussing the storm, obviously, and they concluded that it was supernatural. They were experienced sailors, and they were like, this, we haven't seen anything like this before. There, there's got to be something supernatural going on. So they said, aye, matey, let's cast lots. <laughs> and that's how they said it. You don't see that in your Bible. Anyway, so casting of lots in, in the ancient times was maybe like rolling dice or drawing sticks. And some of you may say, well, well, how does that work? That doesn't seem very spiritual. But God, in the right circumstance, in the right context, would use it. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. When Judas uh, met his demise, they picked the uh, 12th apostle, whether you believe it's Matthias or Paul, by the casting of lots. You can read Acts 1.24-26. through 26. Then they said to him, so here's Jonah with the short end of the stick, right? And the camera pans and everybody's looking at him. And they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? Why the storm? What's your occupation? What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? Where, who are you, dude? Why are you on this boat? What are you up to? And there's Jonah. Uh, uh, well, he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. The Lord's covenant people. By the way, Hebrew is evrit. It means those who reveal the covenant. That's the Hebrew picture language for Hebrew. I'm one of the Lord's covenant people. I fear the Lord God. Do you, Jonah? <laughs> if you fear him so much, why are you on the wrong way boat? But he says, I fear the Lord of heaven who made the what? The sea and the dry land. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. God, I believe God is the creator of the sun, moon, and stars. He made the land. He made the seas. How powerful is God? Have you ever just stood at Newport Beach watching the waves come in and realized how far the ocean goes? And that's just the top of it. There, how much, you know, I read something recently about the percentage of creatures that we've actually discovered that are under the sea. That's not a lot. We don't know a lot of what's actually down there. It's, it's very deep in some places. And God made all that, and he controls all that. Have you ever watched one of those programs with the, the different colored fishes that come, that come, <laughs> come by like that? And you're like, the colors and the... It, God is a creative genius, a God of variety, a God of power. That's your God. Do you believe that? He made the, he thought up the ocean. He thought up all those creatures, and some of them are incredible. So the sea is his, for it was he who made it. Psalm 95, 5, his hands formed the dry land. Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth, in the seas, and in all the deeps. Psalm 146, verse 6 says, He made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he keep, who keeps faith forever. So the men became extremely frightened. They heard about Jonah, and they said to him, This is always inconvenient when unbelievers tell a believer how you should be acting. They said to Jonah, the wrong way prophet, how could you do this? Verse 10. 
For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, how could you run from God? You're a Christian. Have you ever had somebody in your company say that to you? How, how could you be acting that way? Aren't you a Christian? When you get rebuked by an unbeliever, it's very inconvenient. Did you know that unbelievers, certain unbelievers, know some Bible verses? And they'll quote them when you're not behaving the right way. How could you do this? You're a Christian. Unbelievers on the same boat often have to rebuke believers. How could you run from God? What are your reasons for doing this? Ouch. Gulp. Ooh. Boyce says, what happens when we run from God and disobey his clear word to us? When God's word says something and we say, I'm not going to do it this way, or I'm going to do this anyway. Well, Jonah's case teaches us that God will allow us to go our own way, at least at first. Now, Jonah had to really wrestle with his reasons for running in his current situation. He did explain that he was running, but he didn't repent and make things right. He didn't say, all right, turn around the boat now and we'll head for Nineveh. I'm sure we'll have a strong wind at our back. I just need to align my life with God. No, none of that. And so instead of taking a boat where he was supposed to go, he was going to take what, uh, I think it's, uh, is it John Morris, whatever, Morris says he's going to take the Whale Way Express. He's going to end up at his destination. But instead of being on a boat, he's going to be on the Whale Way Express. And it's going to be a little hotter than a boat would be. A little gooier. A little bit more salty. Uh, a little bit more cramped quarters, right? Won't be five-star. be like, like half-a-star <laughs> combinations, right? You'll lose some weight because you'll be in a sauna the whole time, right? Jonah's going to get picked up. He's going to end up where he's supposed to go, but it's going to be less comfortable than it could have been. Can I get a witness? Anybody ever ended up where you're supposed to be in the end, but it was less comfortable than it could have been? <laughs> well, that's what happens with Jonah. So they said to him, what should we do to you, verse 11, that the sea may become calm for us? I love that line. <laughs> what should we do to you that things could calm down for us? How many, how many of you remember the line in Shrek when he's trying to pick a warrior to fight the dragon and he says, some of you may have to die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> what do we need to do to you? Should we tar and feather you? you know, what needs to happen here that God will calm down this storm that obviously he has caused on account of you. For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. You see, when we're running from God, at first the storm may be severe, but it will get worse. The more you run, the more the storm will get heavy. So it was becoming worse. What should we do to you? Sometimes we ask our kids that when they do something wrong. What do you think your punishment should be? Do you know that oftentimes I've been surprised when my kids were little, they had a worse punishment for themselves than I would have given them. <laughs> All right, Dad. <laughs> Don't beat me for three weeks. <laughs> All right, son. I, I think that's a little extreme. <laughs> 
slap me in the face with a fish, Dad. And <laughs> like 70 times, I think. I'll, I'll be good. <laughs> so here's Jonah. He says, pick me up, verse 12, and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Pick me up. Make me walk the plank. Now, Jonah could have just dove over the edge, right? How did Jonah know, think with me, how did Jonah know that when he hit the water, it would become calm for them? How did he know that? The only way he probably could have known, and this is some conjecture, but think about it, is he probably got another word from the Lord. Maybe Jonah prayed. I don't know for sure. But the Lord had spoken to him on several occasions, and maybe it was something like this. If you want this to calm down for these guys, have them throw you overboard. And you know, Bible students, when we've thought about the story of Jonah, we, we all know that have studied this, that this is a type of the resurrection. But do you know that there's a type, a picture here of also the crucifixion? Because Jesus said, I'm going to go into the hands of sinful men. And Jesus, on God's timeline, allowed himself to die the right time at the Passover on God's timetable. And in some way, when Jonah says, throw me overboard, Jonah's saying, I'm going to die that you might survive this storm of judgment. I'm willing to die that the, the, the storm will become calm for you. All of a sudden, the wrong way prophet who wasn't willing to go preach to pagans now is willing to die for men in a ship that he doesn't even know. Has something happened to his heart? Has something uh, changed as he's met the storm and maybe God has spoken to him? Well, the storm is all about getting you into God's will. <clears throat> it's not about destroying you. It's about making you a vessel of hope. And if some of you have been in the storm and you're like, God, what, what are you doing? Okay, I admit it. Uncle, I give up. And if you say, I will do what you've called me to do, all God wants to do is make you a vessel of hope. That's all he wants to do. That's all he wanted Jonah to do is to go to Assyria and to preach hope. That's what God wants to make you, a vessel of hope. God wasn't through with Jonah, but he was going to have to go through some deep stuff. You see, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, I believe that God's mercy is driving all of this, the storm, the sailors, and I believe you're going to see that the sailors even get saved. So the men rowed desperately. They, they heard Jonah's words, but they rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. They were trying to, to fight for Jonah. The irony is thick. Here's a Jewish prophet. These men don't even know him. Yet they risk their lives that he, one man, won't perish. And the irony is thick because the one man running from God wouldn't even go to another group of people so that they wouldn't perish. The pagans are doing more for the prophet than the prophet would do for the pagans. They don't even know him. But they rode and they rode and they rode some more and they knew it wasn't working. And Jesus, we know, came into this world that none of us perish. And so they called on the Lord and they said, 14, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do 
Do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. <laughs> Before we throw him overboard, it's clear that you are the true God. Uh, oh, we're we're going to get a little seawater and wash our hands of this man's blood. <laughs> we tried everything we could. He told us, throw me overboard. Can you hear through the wind and the waves? Uh, so we're innocent of this man's blood. That's what Pilate did. I am innocent of this man's blood. It's on you, he said to the Jewish people. It's your responsibility. I wash my hands of it. And so they prayed. The question is, has Jonah prayed yet? Perhaps. Maybe not. And so they picked up Jonah and they threw him, 15, into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. Maybe the moment he hit the cannonball <laughs> in the sea, <laughs> ah! he hit the water, <sighs> completely calm. And the sailors, if you're one of those sailors, are you amazed? This God must be God. The moment, that's what the prophet said, the moment he hits the water, it's going to be calm for us, and it's calm for us, and wow! Have you ever had one of those epiphany moments where you're like, you know what? There is a God, and the God of the Bible is God. Wow! That's probably what was happening to the sailors. The men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, a very Jewish thing to do, to approach God. And what did they do? End of 16, and they made vows. They offered a sacrifice, perhaps a dove or something like that. We don't know for sure. And they made vows. What do you think their vows were? Okay, apparently you are the true God. I will now follow you for the rest of my days. How many of you have made vows after God's calmed the storm? How many of you are in church right now because God calmed several storms, got your attention, and now you're in church, and you've made some vows, something like this. Okay, clearly you are God. I am not. So I am now going to follow you. Praise God that He's so good that he would even spend any time to cause a storm and to pursue us. Isn't it kind of, doesn't it make you feel special that he cares about you that much? He could just let you go. He could have said, you know what, up in heaven he could have said, you know what, let, Jonah's off the list. He's no longer a prophet. Let's get somebody else. There's plenty of prophets around. But he doesn't give up on us. Even when we run from him. And so there's Jonah in the water. I don't know if he's doing a breaststroke or a backstroke, floating a little bit. Maybe he's reserved himself to saying, I'm going to die. And the Lord, final verse, appointed or prepared a great fish. The word great is gadol in Hebrew. It means large or great. The word fish is the common word for fish. It's daug, D-A-W-G in English. To swallow Jonah. So here's Jonah in the water. Maybe Jonah's like, all right, cool. Things have calmed down. And all of a sudden, don't. I would like to know if there's a viewing room in heaven and there's footage. Wouldn't you like to see the movie? Maybe it's one of the first movies you get to see. Jonah in 5D. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> Could God really make a fish that big? Yep. 
And maybe one of these big fish was just swimming by that day in the vicinity. And God said, hey. <laughs> he does speak fish. He, he speaks all the languages. I don't know if he had to speak a dolphin kind of, I don't know. No, I, I, I don't think so. But anyway, whatever way, he got the attention and the fish swallowed the wrong way, prophet. Oh, my goodness. There you are running from God, storm-tossed. You jump into the ocean or you're thrown into the ocean. You think it's over. And your problems just got worse. But the fish was sent, please hear what I'm about to say, not to destroy Jonah, but to save him. The fish was sent to get Jonah to his destination, not to destroy him. I don't know if early in his life he had Hebrew swimming classes. I'm not sure. I don't know if he knew how to swim. I don't know much about Jonah other than what's in the Bible. But the fish was not a judgment. It was his salvation. It was to get him to his destination. And when storms and things like this come, and we're like, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. Can it get any worse? Sticky stomach acids, rancid smell of fish, seaweed hat. <laughs> Some things from my notes as we wrap up. Jonah got a taste of death and hell. He got a taste of what it felt like to be abandoned by God, though he was not. Perhaps he got a taste of what the Ninevites would experience without the Lord. In a similar way, Jesus tasted death for us all. Into the dark abyss, Jesus was cast. Jonah went into the water of the abyss, and the fish looked like his demise. Jesus went to the cross, and when he went into the tomb, I think most people said, that's it, story over. Nobody comes out of places like that. But God is in the miracle-working business. And after three days and three nights, whatever the exact chronology, three days, three nights, how you work out all the hours, some of you have wrestled with that, Jesus Christ emerged from the tomb. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Do you believe that? And in Nineveh, a thrown-up prophet showed up. And he began preaching. And the next Family Sunday, when we're together, we'll hear his message. Turn all the way to Matthew. I'm going to ask Shane if you can hear my voice to come on up. Matthew 12. I'm going to show you something that Jesus said, and we're done. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes, Matthew 12, 38, and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
Jesus has come. He has given us a sign of the resurrection. In the very history in which we find ourselves, more evidence for the resurrection than for any event of antiquity, say some of the big scholars and legal minds of a past age and even of our time. And the question becomes, what will we do with this one called Jesus? And for a room filled probably mostly with Christians, it's not so much about whether you've received him. It's whether or not you've heeded his call in your life. And I know this room is filled with a bunch of people who are saying, Lord, my ears are open to how you would call me, how you would use me. This is not a dress rehearsal, brothers and sisters. You get one shot at this. One shot to redeem your life for his glory. One shot to live in the resurrection power that he demonstrated when he rose from the dead. One shot to use your life for his glory. And maybe that's what many of you have to wrestle with. But for others of you who don't know him, the gospel's true. He came and he died. He came on a rescue mission for you. He allowed himself to be killed on that cross to pay your ransom price for all the times that I've gone in the wrong direction and you have too, all the sins that I've committed. And he proved he is who he said he was by the resurrection from the dead. And he says, believe me, trust me, open your heart to me. Would you pray with me? Father, for those who are maybe not Christians yet and maybe they felt like they were blown into this building by a storm, I pray you'll help them to open their hearts to you. It doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, whatever your age may be, you have to have a moment when you ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. Would you do that now? If you, if you haven't settled it, Jesus, would you pray Save me. I'm sorry that I've sinned against you so many times. Thank you that you came on that rescue mission, that you were cast into the abyss of death for me. But thank you that you emerged from that tomb victorious and that your victory is mine. I believe in you. I trust in you. I, maybe some of you need to rededicate your life to him. Just do some business with him and for those of you who are Christians, maybe there's a fresh calling, a stirring in your life. Maybe you've been running from it. But as he speaks to you, can I just say to you, just go his way. It'll always be the best way. Father, thank you so much for your powerful word. May you bless your people, strengthen them, use them for your glory. Use all of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?